Brothers and sisters, we come now to God's Word. We're in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we'll be reading verses 1 through 17 together this morning. You can find that on page 1026 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the end and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word. And let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to the other, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, who was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear. And the bearer stood, de- uh, stood still when he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the young man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father, with these words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. What is saving faith? A few weeks ago, we finished Luke chapter 6, and at the end of that chapter, Jesus instructed His disciples and all those surrounding Him that unless they were to stand on Him as the solid rock of their salvation, that they would fall. And as we learned that to stand on Christ means to have faith in Christ. To believe in 
Christ. The way of salvation is the way of faith in Jesus Christ. But what is the substance of saving faith? How do we stand on Christ in faith? What exactly are we trusting in? What does it look like to have this faith? We find the answer to these questions as we move on into Luke chapter 7. The events of this chapter flow directly out of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain giving us a a picture, a more concrete image of the nature of the substance of saving faith. We find the substance of saving faith illustrated for us in these two stories that begin this chapter. These two scenes illustrate for us the two components of saving faith. Two realities about Christ that we place our faith and we place our trust in. Think of them as two footholds. Two footholds that we fasten ourselves to as we seek to stand on Christ, the solid rock of our salvation. Here they are. First, we place our faith in Christ's worth in our unworthiness. And second, we place our faith in Christ's power in the impossible. So first, we place our faith in Christ's worth in our unworthiness. As we enter chapter 7, Jesus is still ministering in and around the Sea of Galilee. And no doubt His fame was beginning to grow. We know this because as He entered the town of Capernaum, a great crowd was following Him. But piercing through that crowd, as soon as he entered Capernaum, were the elders of that city, the elders of the Jewish synagogue. They'd been sent by a man, by a centurion, a Roman soldier, in fact, a captain of soldiers, a soldier who was over a hundred other soldiers. No doubt the centurion had heard also of the fame of Christ. Perhaps he'd even heard of some of the miracles of Christ. And that was good news for him because he needed a miracle. His servant had fallen ill. In fact, it says that he was close to death. He needed Jesus' help. But the centurion was no stranger to Jewish laws and customs. He knew that he was a Gentile sinner, he knew that he was unclean. And so he did not presume to come directly to Christ himself. No, he sent for himself envoys. He sent for himself his friends, the the elders of the Jewish synagogue, perhaps thinking to himself, a holy man like Jesus. Maybe he will listen to the elders of the Jewish synagogue. He knew that he needed a salvation that he could not get for himself. And in this we find the beginnings of saving faith, the substance of saving faith. It begins with what you believe about yourself and what you believe about Jesus. R. Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says that this passage reveals two essential components of Christian faith. Knowing who Christ is and knowing who we are. 
And as Hughes goes on to say, we find three different perspectives on this in the following interaction between the Jewish elders, the centurion, and Jesus. First, in the Jewish elders, we find the religious insider's perspective. The religious insider's perspective. When these Jewish elders come to Jesus, what do they lead with? You learn a lot about someone's perspective by what they lead with in an argument. What arguments do they use as they plead earnestly with Jesus? Verses 4 through 5. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing new under the sun, is there? If we were just to translate this argument into our modern context, it would sound more like. He is such a godly man, Jesus. He's given so much money to our church. He helped us build our fellowship hall. In fact, his name is emblazoned on it. He is worthy of this help, Jesus. You see, as religious insiders, we so quickly forget who we are, don't we? Our perspective on ourselves, our perspective on those within the church, our perspective even on good people adjacent to the church gets skewed. And how does it usually get skewed? We begin to equate external achievement, external success, external worth with spiritual worth. We begin to presume that we are worthy of something from God. And then that leads to us beginning to view the the Christian faith, our Christian walk, as somewhat of a transaction. (laughs) I do this for God, and then God does this for me. But friends, not only is that not saving faith, not only is that not Saving faith, that's the beginning of all false religion. All false religion begins with a desire to add just something to Jesus. All false religion is Jesus plus something. Jesus plus our external worthiness. Jesus plus our holiness. Jesus plus our religious behavior. Our religiosity. And friends, something, that something doesn't even have to be external. In fact, it can be internal. And perhaps that's the most dangerous. We can begin to view salvation as Jesus plus our internal spirituality. Jesus plus our devotional life. Or even... Jesus plus the strength of our faith in Him. Now, we would never say this out loud, but so often this is how we view the Christian faith. We presume or believe that Jesus is the proprietor of the salvation store. And in order to get the salvation that He 
has for us. We need to scrounge together all of the faith that we have. We need to get together all of the good religious things that we have done. We need to package and put together a carefully curated picture of our external worthiness. We get all this together and we we walk up to the front counter of eternity and say to Jesus, I'd like your salvation, please. But friends, beloved, you cannot put God in your debt. I say that as someone who needs to hear it as well. But we cannot put God in our debt. You cannot say with the older brother in Luke chapter 15, all these years I have served for you, all these years I have worked for you, and now you owe me. Saving faith is not transactional. It's not transactional. In fact, you bring nothing to the counter. All you bring is your need. And interestingly enough, isn't that the perspective of the centurion? That's the perspective of the irreligious outsider. It's clear from this text that the centurion does not agree with the elder's assessment of his worth. He does not agree with the elder's perspective on himself or on Jesus. That's why, perhaps having second thoughts, he sends a second contingent of friends to clarify his position. Perhaps the Jewish elders thought that they knew better. Perhaps they thought that they just needed to embellish the credentials of this centurion just a little bit so that Jesus would hear. Perhaps they thought they knew better even than what the centurion was asking for. But friends, it is the centurion in this story who knows better. It is the centurion this irreligious outsider who displays true faith. What do the friends of the centurion come to Jesus and say? What's their argument? What's his perspective? Verses 6 through 7. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. The centurion knows that he needs something from Jesus that he cannot get for himself. He has no goods or services with which to procure it. He's not worthy even to come before Jesus to ask for it. He acknowledges that he cannot save his servant. He's not worthy of such a salvation, but that Jesus can grant it to him by his his grace with just a word. That is saving faith. Saving faith brings nothing to the counter. It just receives what is offered freely. And so, friends, if you were to come to Christ, you must first acknowledge your unworthiness. 
And you must place your faith and your trust in the worthiness of Christ. You must acknowledge that no matter what you think, no matter what you have done for God, He owes you nothing. No matter what external worthiness you may think you have, He owes you nothing. If you are to come to Christ, here is how you must come. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Saving faith acknowledges the fact that we are never saved because we are worthy of being saved. We're never saved because we are worthy of being saved. We're saved because Christ is worthy to save us. We need His worthiness, brothers and sisters. We need His perfect righteousness. We need His all-sufficient sacrifice to cleanse us from our sin. He is worthy. And because He is worthy, we are saved. Friends, notice that Jesus does not marvel at the arguments of these Jewish elders. He does not marvel at the credentials of the centurion. He does not Marvel at the architectural opulence of the synagogue that he has constructed. What does he marvel at? Do you see? He marvels at the humble faith of the centurion. The humble faith that brings nothing, has nothing. A humble faith in Christ's worth, in Christ's worthiness in Christ's ability to save. That's what he says in verse 9. That's what Christ says in verse 9. This is the divine Savior's perspective. He says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What he's saying here essentially is that not even in those who have received the law of God have I seen such faith. Not even in those who should know better. Not even in those who have read Isaiah 66, verse 2, and should know that this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. That's foothold number one. In saving faith, we place our trust in Christ's worth in our unworthiness. And second, in Christ's power in the impossible. That's what we see as we move forward in this passage. In the second half of this passage, we, we see Jesus and his followers entering into the town of Nain. Nain was a little village about 20 miles south of Capernaum. And as they were about to enter the village, in fact, before they were even able to enter the village, they're confronted with a funeral procession exiting the city by the gate. It was a young man who was 
dead. He was going to be buried where other people were buried, outside the city in perhaps a, a family burial plot. Jesus sees this scene. He sees the mourners. He sees the coffin. And then he sees the mother, who we learn only had one son. And it's this one, the one who has just died. And then we learn that she is a widow. Her only son is dead, and now her husband is dead. Or her husband is dead, and now her only son is dead. Can you imagine that grief? Can you feel it? Jesus did. He heard what is hidden from our ears, which is the, the shrieking and the moaning of the mourners. He heard the gut-wrenching cries of lament that came from the mother. He felt her grief. He felt her hopelessness. No one should ever have to bury their child. Those of you who've lost a child know the, the depth of that grief. It's an impossible situation. A dead son, a despairing widow and mother. How would Jesus react? He had compassion on her. He had compassion. He is moved. And the word used for compassion here, it rever it's, a, it's a physical word. It refers to a, a visceral, physical, literally a, a gut-wrenching emotion. Jesus entered into the grief of this woman and he felt it with her. And then he offered these words of comfort. Do not weep. Now, Jesus is not just telling her to put on a stiff upper lip, put on a happy face. He's not just dismissing her grief. No, he is telling her that he is going to do something about it. Praise God <laughs> that he looks on our sorry estate and offers not just compassion, but salvation. In this impossible situation, Christ is about to display his power. It says in verse 14 that he came up and touched the bear, which is the coffin. The bearer stood still and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Christ reaches down into death and brings life, an impossible situation, met a compassionate Savior, and the result was a miraculous salvation. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. This is the other foothold 
that we fasten ourselves to as the people of God. Christ's power in the impossible. Because faith in Jesus Christ means that not even death is the end. Nothing is impossible with God. And so we trust not in our own worth, not in our own power, but in the worth and the power of Christ in any circumstance, no matter how impossible it may seem. Because, brothers and sisters, the, the best part of all of this is that this resurrection, the resurrection of this young man in the village of Nain is not an isolated incident. It is not just an isolated miracle way back in the history of God's people. No, it is a picture of what God can do and will do in all of our hearts by faith. Let us never lose sight of the fact that every single conversion, every single story of salvation is a miracle just like this one. There are no ordinary stories of salvation. There are no natural stories of salvation. No one is grandfathered into the kingdom of heaven. It is always a miracle. By His Spirit, Christ speaks that glorious word of salvation into our hearts, and they come alive. An impossible situation, us being dead in our trespasses and sins, cut off from fellowship with God, an impossible situation met a compassionate Savior, and the result was a miraculous salvation. That's all of our stories by faith. And though we may die, just like this young man, we will all hear those same glorious words one day. <laughs> Beloved in the Lord, I say to you, arise. That is the power of God that is at work in us. And just like the crowds in this passage, we will all live to glorify and praise God forever. But as we live now, this passage has important implications for us as a church. Because just as we are saved by faith, we also live by faith. And as we seek to live by faith, we continue firmly planted on these footholds, trusting in Christ's worth, trusting in Christ's power. Because our faith will fail. Our faith will falter. But praise God, we're saved not by the strength of our faith, but by the strength of our Savior. And praise God that we are kept and held and sanctified, not by the strength of our faith, but by the strength of our Savior. This is what we need to remember, especially as we face trials of every kind. And so, First Church, as you enter into a 
difficult season of life as a church family, as you face trials of every kind, as you face what some may characterize as an impossible situation, yet another pastoral vacancy, you will be tempted to rely on your own worth. You'll be tempted to rely on your own power. You'll be tempted towards anxiety and fear. Perhaps even you'll be tempted to just pack it in and give up. But first, church, remember the God that you serve. Remember the God that you serve. The one who made all things by the word of his power. The one who hung the galaxies. The one who brings dead things to life. The one who reached down into your dead heart and made it alive. The one for whom nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. Believe it. Trust in it. Don't grumble, don't worry, don't give up. Pray. (laughs) Wear out your knees before the Father, asking Him to do what only He can do. Asking Him to move in a way that only He can move. Asking Him to work in a way that only He can work. That is true faith. Faith in Christ's power. Faith in Christ's worth even in the impossible. Let's go to him in prayer and ask for him to grant us such a faith. Father, fix our faith on the rock of Christ. Fix our faith on his supreme worth, his righteousness with which we become righteous. His cross on which He died for our salvation. His resurrection in which He conquered death forever. Fix our faith on His power to save and redeem and restore. And Father, as we gather now around Your table, where we see the emblems of our Savior's worth, where we see His body which was broken so that we may be healed, His blood poured out so that we may be forgiven, would You refresh our hearts with His presence and His power? Would we see in these elements a visible depiction of the good news of the gospel? that as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we ask that you would give us by your Spirit the the faith to know that Christ meets us in this meal. Help us to receive it in faith. Do this all for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen.